is the writing on the wall for our work and our world. Hello and welcome back to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and joining us once again is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States as we continue our series on the book of Daniel with Daniel chapter 5. Alistair, hi and welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for having me back. Oh, it's a pleasure. We can't uh, we can't leave the story hanging in midair. To what extent has Daniel so far been about this conflict of world powers or empires? So something we've noted at various points in our discussion of the earlier chapters of Daniel is the shadow of Babel behind. It's a story that picks up the themes of Babel and gives a number of different variations of them. So behind the story of Babel is this fundamental conflict between the kingdoms of this world and their pretensions and the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And this is one of the things that, as we read through the book of Daniel, serves as a sort of key to understand the unity of the stories. It's not just fun episodes within the life of this character, Daniel, colourful things that happen to him, but there's a broader thesis to the book. And that thesis, I think, could be understood in terms of this conflict between the empires of this world and the kingdom of our Lord. And within this chapter, there's a continuation of those themes, not now in the figure of Nebuchadnezzar, but in someone who's taking on from him, Belshazzar. And this is the final scene, as it were, within the story of the kingdom of Babylon. Yes, Babylon is about to fall. In this chapter, we meet, as you've already said, another new ruler, this time someone called Belshazzar. Now, who was Belshazzar? It's been debated in the past whether Belshazzar even existed until we found evidence that he did in fact exist and vindicating the biblical record. And this, I think, is a caution for people who would, on the basis of a limited amount of evidence, make very dogmatic statements about what was or was not the case. When we're dealing with the biblical record, often we're dealing with the most um, information that we have on the particular events that and figures that it refers to. So in the case of Belshazzar, Belshazzar was, we believe he was a son of Nabonidus who ruled the kingdom alongside him as a vicegerent. And he was the final king during the period of the overthrow of Babylon. Was he actually related to Nebuchadnezzar at all? The possibility is that his... Um, mother was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, but he was not a direct descendant from him. Okay. So what happens in chapter five? Because it's a pretty eventful chapter. Yes, it's a, a very interesting chapter. Oh, it's fabulous. It begins with something that we've been waiting for. Um, so when we're reading a book like Daniel, we need to pay attention to the details. And one of the details is the various um, items from the temple that were taken and they were brought to Babylon and they are, as um, the description of Chekhov's gun, this gun that's on the wall and before the end of the play, that gun has to be fired if it's going to make narrative sense. And so the items from the te temple are like Chekhov's gun within the book of Daniel. You're waiting for them to go off. And in chapter five, they go off. There's this feast celebrated by the king and to the feast, he brings the items from the temple and celebrates, worships the god, gods of gold and silver and uh, bronze. And he um, worships 
pagan deities and then there's this writing on the wall and no one can interpret it of the officials and the magicians and soothsayers that are asked and so eventually the queen says that there is this guy called Daniel who joined the reign of Nebuchadnezzar presumably this this is one of the reasons why we wonder whether the queen in question was the queen mother and whether she was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar she mentions Daniel who had interpreted the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and then Daniel is brought and the promise is that the person who interprets will become the third ruler in the kingdom, which when we consider um, the fact that he's the vice-garant would be the next in charge right under him. Mm, it makes um, sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. It does. Uh, again, it's a sort of confirming detail that no one knew that we didn't have clear evidence of Belshazzar beforehand. And then when we realize the relationship between Belshazzar and Nabonidus, that detail in the text starts to make more sense than it would have done previously. So again, it's a testimony of two witnesses in some respects, the biblical evidence being confirmed and also strengthened by the um, record that we have from uh, archaeology and elsewhere and the histories. And then when he interprets the dream, when he interprets the writing, it's, words on the wall relating to weights, but it's a bit of a code. There's a bit more going on there. And it refers to the downfall of the kingdom, the division among the Medes and the Persians. And then that very night, um, the kingdom is brought down. You mentioned that we have another mention of the temple vessels here in chapter five. To what extent are we looking at Belshazzar's attempt to rebuild the Babel project? He's trying to do what Nebuchadnezzar did. I think that there's very much... Um, a sort of parody of the temple going on here. We have the lampstand mentioned. It's not just the the items that they're eating and drinking from, but also the lampstand itself. It's as if they're recreating something of the holy place. And there is a sort of contrast between Babel and the temple from the very beginning that I think we're seeing something more of that here. So in the story of Babel, it's a story of a conduit between heaven and earth, an attempt to bring this, uh, to form a conduit between heaven and earth that would later be seen in something like the tabernacle, or we can think about Bethel and the angels ascending and descending upon Jacob's ladder. That is the true meaning of the temple. But yet this is a sort of false Babel like the others. It's an attempt to bring humanity together. It's an attempt to bring the heavens and the earth together and it's celebrating a feast that is a sort of parody of what takes place in the heart of the temple, in the holy place. The feast is described in verse 1 as a great bread or meal, and there is wine and praise of many gods. Is this a kind of babelic religious feast? Yes, I think you could put it that way. There are a number of ways in which pagan worship appears within the book of Daniel. You can think about in um, chapter 3, the attempt to get all the people to worship the golden image again in this chapter. And then, of course, in the chapter that follows, um, no one else worshipping any other god for 30 days except for the king. These are all forms of false worship and means by which people are united. I mean, part of the purpose of all of this is to proclaim the greatness of Babylon and also to declare the way in which everyone is united in this common form of worship. So in Babel, they all spoke the same language and they all had the same lip. 
in um, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord speaks about restoring a pure lip to the nations so that they might all worship in the right way. So lip maybe suggests some sort of confession or praise or object of worship, not just a language. And here there seems to be something of that element of false worship as a means of bringing people together. And throughout the book of um, Daniel, that element is present. Why on earth is Belshazzar actually holding this religious feast anyway? It seems strange. I mean, the kingdom is going to be brought down that very day, that very evening. So it seems odd that he would be having such a feast on the brink of the destruction of his kingdom. But nonetheless, he is. He's, he's just seemingly oblivious to the danger that he faces. I think also the language, the confusion of the language itself the language that can't be interpreted, maybe gives us an indication this is a man who can't read the signs. The writing is on the wall, to use our expression, and he can't see it. And he will have the writing interpreted for him, and it will be played out for him within a few hours later. So I think he's oblivious to the severity of his situation. He's someone who is presenting the strength of his kingdom, the greatness of his kingdom, in some ways, like you think about Nebuchadnezzar on the roof of his palace looking out and then his pride speaking about his greatness. Here is a man who takes the items of God's temple to proclaim his greatness as the king who comes from a line of those who have despoiled these temples of the gods of the nations round about. And so he presents himself as greater than the Lord. He's able to rob, despoil his temple and then celebrate a feast in his celebration, a celebration of his own greatness, using the items that belong to the Lord. To what extent is God bringing judgment on Belshazzar through the use of the temple vessels? Yes, the, the lampstand seems to play an important part. We might think of the lampstand casting a shadow that is you can see the handwriting through. And so the, the light of the lampstand seems to be an important part of the story. The book of Numbers describes a ritual in chapter five, the test of jealousy, where those who were being tested of suspected adultery had to drink of this cup. And as they drank of the cup, they would, if they were guilty, the woman would be caused to have her thigh swell and her belly swell, and she would be judged in a very notable way. And and Belshazzar seems to have a similar sort of reaction. He's drinking from the cups of the Lord, not realizing that it's a bitter cup of judgment. And he, according to some interpretations, he relieves himself. He's in a situation where he's not acting in a kingly manner. He's scared, so scared that he cannot contain himself. And when we consider the way in which the prophet Jeremiah describes the judgment of the Lord, this seems to be working upon the idea of the cup of the Lord that's given to the wicked, rebellious nation to drink. And as they drink it, they bring the judgment upon them themselves. So the Lord's cup has now been taken up by the king of Babylon. He's forced to drink it. And as he drinks it, the judgment will fall. In what sense was the lampstand a watcher tree, which watched symbolically over Israel? I mean, it stood in front of the table of showbread with the 12 loaves, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, presumably. So now if he's brought this lampstand into his palace, it's presumably watching over God's empire. 
and in front of the table. Um, we can also think about the ways that that imagery is used in scripture. So first of all, the connection with the watcher is quite explicitly drawn in Jeremiah chapter one, where the Lord speaks about the almond branch and says that he is watching over his word to fulfill it. And so he plays the punned meaning of the almond tree is something that the Lord himself plays upon in Jeremiah chapter one in the commission of the prophet. Elsewhere, we see the fact that the lampstand is has almond blossoms and other things. It's an arboreal image. It's not just uh, a, a bare lampstand. It's a lampstand that's modeled after a tree. And in particular, it's connected with almonds. Further to that, we could think about the way that the almond tree represented the priest. So the rod of Aaron budded and produced almonds. And when we consider the relationship between the tree or the almond tree, the watcher tree, and then the lampstand and the priest, they're all performing a similar sort of thing. The lampstand gives light, and it's that which the connection between light and sight, I think, is important. We tend to think about sight as receiving light, but in scripture, sight is also something that gives out light. So we can think about the lamp of the body as the eye in Jesus' teaching. And so the watcher is connected with the, the lampstand and with the high priest or the priest. And so the priest is the one who watches over the people of Israel. The lampstand represents that as well. It represents, among other things, I think the character of the law as a light to our feet and path. Think about the way that there were five lampstands in the temple on either side, connected with one hand and the other. And there are five um, tables as well. So you can think about food and light. And so the watcher tree, I think, is an important image in scripture. It's connected with the lampstand. It's connected with judgment and oversight. And it's connected with the figure of the priest. And here, I think, um, it's connected with that act of judgment the Lord is bringing upon the nation. Is Belshazzar's feast a counterfeit Lord's Supper? I think we could see it that way. I mean, in a number of respects, this is presented as a sort of unwitting table of the Lord. They've brought in the Lord's implements and other things. They're eating from his tableware. They've got his lampstand before him, before them. And so they're bringing the judgment of the Lord upon them. Now, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we can do the same thing. You can think about the way that the Apostle Paul describes the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where in an unwitting way, they are bringing the Lord's judgment upon themselves, not celebrating in a worthy manner. And their failure to recognize each other brings that judgment. And yet Paul says that it's the cup of blessing that we drink. So we've thought about the relationship with the cup of curse, the cup of curse that's spoken of in Jeremiah being handed out through the nations and eventually coming to Babylon itself. And also to the cup of curse of um, Numbers chapter five, the test of jealousy. And yet when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the sort of purpose of it is that, and the expectation of it is that it will be, bring blessing. There are occasions when it might bring curse, but that is utterly contrary to its proper purpose and intent. And so I think there is a connection with the table of the Lord here. It is actually using his tableware and it's in front of his lampstand and he's the one overseeing it. But yet there's an unwitting aspect to this and it brings the exact opposite 
result as the Lord's table is intended to bring for us as we celebrate his supper. Here's a provocative question for you, Alistair. Is the Lord Jesus Christ at Belshazzar's feast? can certainly speculate on that front. I mean, we've had the figure of the, the fourth figure, the one like the son of the gods in chapter three. We'll have the figure of Michael later on, the glorious angelic appearance in chapter 10. It would not surprise me if we were supposed to see the figure of Christ here. We can think about the way in which the theophanies of the Old Testament often involve a figure that could later be associated with Christ. And so it would not surprise me if we were to regard the hand as the hand of the Lord. Um, in, we can also think about the way that Christ himself writes with his hand upon the dust of the ground in chapter eight of John's gospel, depending on how we understand that passage. Yep. Yes, there's a, I think that connection is not a reach to draw. Mm. What is the riddle written on the wall? What does the Lord's hand actually write? Yeah, so the words associate with weights and measures, and they can be read in different ways. So the first level is as nouns, um, then they can be read as verbs, and then they can be read as other related verbs. And it seems to me that what, well, first of all, if you were to solve the riddle, you have to have some answer that makes sense of these things, but in such a way that there's a sort of multiplicity of meanings that you could give to this. So many different meanings that you could give to these letters as they're put there. Um, if you think about it, there's no vowels and there's presumably no spaces either. And so there are many ways that you could read these letters. The fact that Daniel reads them in the way that he does, he almost has to give a reading that is so rich that there's no other way that you could imagine reading it that would be more full and apt than that. And so part of the problem is they could mean too many things when you see them at first. But Daniel's reading requires reading them at a number of different levels that are interrelated. And then when you've brought those different levels together, it makes sense of the whole. And there's no other solution that would fit quite so neatly. And as a result, the, there is a sort of confirmation of Daniel's reading because it makes sense of the letters, but it also is something that makes sense of them in a way to a degree that no other interpretation could, even though there are many other ways that you could read them. So the letters connect to weights initially as nouns. And so the image underlying is weighing things out, measuring things relative to each other. And one of the images being suggested is you've got the many on one side, this weight of the minor, and then on the other side, you have measuring against something on the other side of the balance. And what do you measure it with? And so you have the, the shekel on the other side, but the shekel is not sufficient. It's only a 60th of the, the minor. And so you need something that's fitting for it. And so you have the parson, the two weights coming together, which are two half minors, and that's the fitting correspondence. Now, that's the first level of meaning that you could think of. The next level of meaning takes the verbal um, connotations, and that's the way that he works out the meaning that he's been weighed in the balances, find, found wanting, and then things are going to be delivered over to the Medes and the Persians. And we can think about the way in which 
that's playing upon the meaning in other ways. So the Persians connected with Parson and the way in which this is a three-level stage of interpretation. And when you put it all together, it falls into place. The other thing is that there are numerical properties to this. First of all, the as they measure relative to each other, that the first you've got the minor that's measured against the tekel or the shekel, it doesn't measure relative to it. And so it's completely outweighed by it. Nebuchadnezzar, the, the man of gold, will not be measured out effectively relative to the shekel weight man. And so Belshazzar himself is the shekel weight man. You need the two half minors, and that's the two sides of the Medes and the Persians. And so on that level, it's got a numerical logic to its to the me measures. But also, if you add those things up, if you take the minors, the minor is divided into two into the parson, then you've got a situation where you've got 91. You've got um, those weights put, put together. And then you can measure that out in every single one of the directions in which you have these letters. And it forms a, a, a grid that has those numbers mapped into it in the gematria. Um, James Bajon has a really brilliant series of papers on this that are worth looking into. The other thing is, as we go through the book, we can see numbers connected to this. The other possibility is that the parson are half, not minors, but shekels. And if that were the case, then this is connected with the number 62. Um, so you've got 60 plus one plus two halves. So that's 62. And 62 is an important number within the chapter and also in chapter nine. Can the six phrases be related to the six branches of the lampstand? Perhaps it's something that I'd need to look into in more depth, but it's, it's not something I've got a, a sure opinion on. We've mentioned numbers just as we, before we close. Why are the numbers three and four so important in this chapter? Well, we can think about the ways in which those numbers recur in various ways within the book. In the structure of the kingdom, for instance, the officials that are, are mentioned. We can also think about the way in which Daniel is promised to become the third ruler in the kingdom. Um, and so there's the three sets of measures and other things like that. Those would all suggest, partly for rhetorical purposes, and partly also within just the structure of the imagery within the book. Those numbers are significant. Think about the body imagery back in chapter two. As you divide that up, it has numbers attached to different levels. So it starts off with one with the head, and then you think, think about the different sides, and then go down to the legs and toes, and you've got 10. And so there's a structure to the kingdom that you also see within the the actual offices within the kingdom. And uh, we've got to ask about the structure of the chapter because we've been talking about chiastic structures, Alistair. Is this chapter chiastic? Well, I think the primary chiasm is the chiasm of the book. So you have the Aramaic section, which this continues, and that will involve that involves a mapping of chapter two onto chapter seven, chapter three onto chapter six, and chapter four and five together. So Chapter two maps onto chapter seven in terms of the four kingdoms and four levels of the statue and the kingdoms and the four beasts, which are both two different ways of speaking about the same thing. Chapter three is the story of the fiery furnace. 
And then chapter six is the lion's den. And they're very similar faithfulness against an idolatrous decree and then punishment that there is a miraculous deliverance from. And then in chapters four and five, we have two corresponding stories of humbled kings, one who responds and one who does not. It's important to notice that the story of Nebuchadnezzar is alluded to in detail as the background for this, as a contrast to the way that Belshazzar acts and responds. Mm. Alistair Roberts from the Theopolis Institute in the States on Daniel chapter five. Thank you once again, Alistair. Just before we close, where can people find you? on social media um, um, if you look at um adversaria podcast i have dot com i have lots of videos and other things there um also i'm on the theopolis podcast on a weekly basis and mere fidelity and um, various other places look for my name online and you'll find most of them wonderful as always thank you so much for your time we really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the god story podcast If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.